Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. You might as well plan on working for somebody else the rest of your life. Because if you wait until all the stars are aligned, so to speak, then you're never going to get out and do this. You got it be somewhat of a risk taker and be willing to take calculated risks. Welcome to the best ever show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm your host, Joe Cornwell. And today I'm joined by Ward Schrader. Ward is a real estate operator and limited partner investor. He's done hospital and commercial real estate developments. He is currently investing in some different types of assets we'll get into. He also was doing bank repo acquisitions. Ward, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I am good. And how are you? I am fantastic. And I failed to mention you're based in Kansas City. I'm assuming you are investing in other markets as well. Is that correct? That's correct. And especially in the medical, we were in probably 25 different states from Florida, Michigan, Ohio, Arkansas, Missouri, of course, Kansas, Nebraska, New Mexico, California, Oregon. So we had a lot of projects all over the country. Okay. And I know you were on the show about 12 to 18 months ago. So tell me what has transpired since then, and then we'll get into a little bit more of the details. Okay. Prior to that show, I'd started an initiative to become more of a private equity investor. And that's what's got me into a variety of other things. I have constantly preached and lived diversity as a hedge against whatever, inflation, downturns, you name it. So with my private equity business now, after selling 30-some of our medical projects, I've been investing in banking. I've invested in assisted living food distribution and food products. So there's a franchise called Freddy's, which is a hamburger franchise and pretty much nationwide now, but a relatively small one by comparison to some of the majors, but invested heavily in that. We have about 80 locations that are up and operating. And maybe the biggest and hopefully the best is a company called Biospace, which is printing through the use of 3D printing, a rocket engine, that we have tested and fired over a hundred times now and are in the process of promoting to the Department of Defense. 
Wonderful. It sounds like you have invested in various fields and types of assets over the years. Let me start with this. What has been your favorite type of investment thus far? Oh, I don't know if I can pick one. At various stages in life, I've enjoyed them all immensely. So early on, it was housing. Well, I liked that real well. I had a fairly modest upbringing. My father was a school teacher and a small farmer in Western Kansas. So not much of a silver spoon there to start with. So needed to find a way to get ahead. At the time that I went independent, I took my degree in chemistry and math and went to work as a salesman for a chemical company. And after a few years, realized I was going to make a living, but never going to be independent and able to enjoy life a little more. So I got into bankruptcy acquisitions and turnarounds and did 30 some of those over about a 10 year period from everything, including a dairy. I had a 3000 head dairy. I had a food distribution business, which was catered to convenience stores, mostly rebuilt Japanese engines, had an assembly line and shipped them all over the U.S. Did a lot of different things and really enjoyed that because it was two or three of them a year and they were all different but they all were similar at the same time. The basics are constant. You take care of your accounts receivable, your accounts payable, your checkbook, your taxes, and et cetera. And all businesses have those things in common. And I found that in the bankruptcy world, there were a lot of them that didn't perform those services for themselves. And it was a part of the reason they failed. So I instituted those things into a variety of entities and managed to salvage about 30% of all the businesses that were in bankruptcy. So not a perfect record, but when I got a hold of them, they were pretty broke and it was difficult to fix some of them. But uh, so I loved that. That got me into healthcare. I really enjoyed healthcare for a long time, about 25 years. But as all things change and all things remain the same, after you've built a dozen hospitals, building another dozen is not quite as exciting as the first few. So I started deciding to get into other things. And that's when I went into the private equity of, like I said, banking, assisted living, food preparation, fast food, coffee shops is another project I'm in, as well as the via space project of launching satellites and military munitions. So I think my career for me anyway, was perfect. Lots of variety. I can't imagine being somebody that worked in the same business for 30 or 40 years and then retired. I did a lot of times when I was employed by first 10 years or so, wonder how could I save enough money to retire? Once I got into being independent, I'm not sure I've ever thought about retiring again. I love being valuable and performing a service and building things and fixing broken things and so forth. So no doubt there'll be a day I can't perform those functions, but at this point in life, I'm really enjoying all the variety. Well, they say if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? I'm sure it doesn't always feel like that, but it's, be it's better than hating what you do anyway. Well, that's right. And when you get into business for yourself, I've encouraged my own employees that were smart and aggressive, get into business for yourself. Not only do you make a lot more money, but you also have a lot more freedom. You get to do what you want to do when you want to do it. Now, that doesn't mean you don't want to work some days. It just means that sometimes... In my case, probably the best example I have is I have nine grandchildren now. And when one of them calls me and wants to do something, I say, sure, let's go do it. And I don't have to worry about not getting away or not having the freedom to make that choice.
Yeah, it's a wonderful point and made a note of follow-up questions here for you. So the first one was, when did you start investing and what was your career before you started investing? Well, as I said, I took my degree in chemistry and math, a lot of physics and biology as well. Went to work for Union Carbide for nine years as a salesman, basically, applications of my education in heat treating, welding, rare and atmospheric gases applications. So we froze food, we made lots of McDonald's hamburgers and froze them and Jimmy Dean sausage and froze them and that sort of thing. Great education, but never going to give me the assets I needed for being an independent businessman. In a big corporation like that, you really don't know what your costs of the products that you're selling are. You're given a price and you're told to go sell it. And I wanted more than that in life. So I got out, went to work for a company that I thought was going to give me an opportunity to learn all the basics of running a business. It was a small distribution business selling rare and atmospheric gases. And when I got there, I realized that they were bankrupt. And I was 30 years old. And now what do I do? And through a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, was able to save that business and learned about bankruptcy, which set me up for getting into bankruptcy acquisition and turnaround. And once you've done one to five of those, banks start learning there's somebody out there that can take over our distressed loans. And then you start getting calls and you get the opportunities to at least look at them and see if it's something you want to do. And that was a great turning point in my life. I was able to start taking over those businesses that I described previously. And fortunately, was able to save several of them and keep a lot of jobs. Several hundreds of jobs were saved in that effort. Some of those businesses I ran for up to 10 years and would either sell them or liquidate them or whatever the market declared was possible. One thing I never did do was fall in love with anything. I've never really cared what I was doing as long as I was doing it well. And that meant I went from selling air separation plants at a million dollars a piece in 1978, which today's dollars would be 20 million, probably 15 million. And I went into the recession in the early 80s where interest rates got to be 21% and the factories were shutting down. And Iowa and Illinois, where I was at that time, there was 25% unemployment. And I started selling safety gear, like gloves and helmets. I sold I started a brand new business at that point, just about six months before that crash came. And what a great experience. At the time, I'm not sure I could tell you that, but it was a great experience because I managed to make a business become successful in about two years during that period of time. So ever since then, whenever a salesman came to me and said, geez, there's nobody buying anything out there, I said, don't give me that. When If I could go out and sell something when 25% of the people in the public or in the community were unemployed and develop a successful business that at least was breaking even during that period of time, we can sell something to somebody. And there's a ream of products out there that you just got to go find it and be aggressive enough. So it gave me the fortitude to know that there is always a way to be successful if you want to work at it hard enough. So that's my history in a nutshell anyway. Took 40 years to develop that history, but it was fun all the way. What year did you graduate college? I'm trying to build this whole timeline in my head here to keep it straight. In 74, at Christmas, I graduated. I joined the Navy to go to flight school in Pensacola. It was the end of Vietnam. Actually, it wasn't over then. I would have went to Vietnam. There was not really any question. Nixon got elected, got us out. I got out of the Navy early. 
because of a contract that I had. I was actually supposed to go in as a nuclear engineer and didn't get to do that. So I ended up going to flight school. And when I went there, they gave me the option of getting out. And I would have finished had we stayed in the war. But when we got out, I decided that that wasn't a place I really enjoyed. So I quit and went to work. So that was 76. Went to work for Union Carbide. Spent, like I said, almost nine years. And then went to work for the distributor for several years. And then started doing bankruptcy acquisitions. Found the food distribution business, got into that. And the fire company, which sold fire trucks and fire extinguishers and everything you can think of. And these were companies you were buying now at this point in the late 80s or so from what I'm hearing. This is when you started buying these distressed companies. Okay, now, was this things you were self-funding? Were you raising money to buy these? Were you borrowing money? Give me an example of how you found a lead for a bankrupt company all the way through the process of acquiring it, turning it around, and then exiting it. Well, it's a great story in my mind because the banks in those situations are basically uncovered, meaning they really don't have enough assets to pay off the debt that is usually there. So a person like myself could go in by law, run the place for 90 days, and the bank would fund me to run it for 90 days. They would give me the cash flow necessary to run it. And I'd get what I'd call the free look. And at the end of 90 days, I had to make a decision. Did I want to take it over or not? At that point in time, as long as I serviced the debt that was out there, I didn't guarantee the debt, but as long as I serviced it, they would let me have the business for free. So I never bought anything in bankruptcy. And I never personally had to guarantee anything in bankruptcy. So some of these businesses were quite large. The food distribution business had 250 employees and 50 million in sales. I learned very quickly that taking over a million dollar pronto print that was bankrupt versus a $50 million food distribution business was an equal amount of work, but the possibilities were not equal. So very quickly, I quit doing relatively small businesses and would run them maybe for the bank for 90 days, but with the plan of liquidating in, in a organized manner. And there is what was called a preferential treatment law, which meant if the banks closed these businesses and started collecting money the first day and just put it in their account to pay off their debt, the bankruptcy court would take that money back from them and distribute it to everybody equally. But if they were the operator of it for at least 90 days, then they could take the money and pay off the debt to them first creditor second. So that was a big incentive for the banks to let me run them for 90 days, have a free look. And if it looked like I could make money, then they would give them to me. I'd make payments on the debt and always go forward. So that's how I ended up owning all of them. So it sounds like if I'm understanding this correctly, you built relationships, I'm assuming with a few banks or one bank, that that's how you were getting the opportunity of these leads. And it's all started with the job you had. That first opportunity was a job that you basically were able to take over ownership of the business. How did you build a relationship with this bank or banks? Well, because sometimes I heard about these failures through the owners, and then I'd get introduced to the bank. So multiple banks throughout Kansas is where I did this, knew of me. But also there are lawyers that specialize in bankruptcy. So as soon as word got to them that I was an individual that was interested in doing that kind of business, then all of a sudden I started getting calls from lawyers, from bankers. And the word in the somebody interested in helping a business succeed spreads pretty rapidly through the business world. Consultants was another method. They got wind of my name and would contact me. I also had a partner that was an attorney. 
So he was recognized in the bankruptcy world as an attorney that specialized in that. So that was a help also. Okay. So take me through, when did you start buying real estate? I know you began with the residential type properties and what year was that? And give me a summary of that journey into starting into then doing later developments. Oh, I probably started doing that in 76 with my first house I bought that was an unfinished, somewhat distressed home and did all the work myself. Literally had 50 to $100 a month extra in my budget and would go out and buy that many two by fours or sheetrock or whatever and took a year and a half to do it. Made money on that house, mostly built my own house other than I needed help framing and closing in. But from there, the next house I designed and built and ended up making money on it Then started doing more of that and more of that, but always had this full-time job of doing whatever at that point in time and ended up realizing that commercial real estate was a more productive avenue per dollar than was multifamily. So if you look at it on a square footage basis, a warehouse maybe would get $18 per square foot per year. And you had a commercial client that would invest a significant amount of money in tenant improvements. So it became a much easier, I guess I left out that there were rentals in there that I had. And rentals to individuals can be a great way to make money and become independent. But it comes with a lot of hassle of toilets that don't flush and water that doesn't run and whatever. Whereas with commercial building, you not only make more money per square foot, but you actually have less issues because the tenant is generally a corporation with good track history and also must invest some tenant money into tenant improvements and didn't want to lose that. So I'm not sure I remember your exact question, but did that answer it? Yeah. So my follow-up to that would be, what year did you start doing the new commercial developments? And then walk me through a little bit of your experience with the medical developments specifically. Late 70s, early 80s, I started doing commercial buildings. I found what I'll call distressed buildings. They weren't bankrupt, like a medical office building that had very small cubicles in it for patient analysis, if you will. And those buildings were not suitable for rental for office space or banking or whatever you wanted them to be. And I'd buy those, remodel them, turn them into first class office space. And generally I remodeled them with a tenant in mind. So I would remodel them for that application. That actually led me to other commercial buildings. So one of the bankruptcies I turned around was a medical project building that I was able to make successful. The doctors, orthopedic surgeons, were the tenants and owners, and they realized what I was doing. They decided they wanted to be my partner. They came back in and actually funded my remodeling of their building for the 30% equity stake in it. And five years later, or actually I think it was three years later, we sold it for two and a half times what we had invested, and we became friends. And through that is how I started getting into medical office buildings more and more for clinic space and then got into building surgical centers out. And at that time, there weren't many surgical centers and surgical hospitals in the U.S., maybe not more than a couple dozen. So not only did I have to build out the facilities, 
but I ended up having to manage and operate the operations of them. So I ended up not only owning the real estate, but I ended up owning the operating company and building a management company that did billing and collections for multiple locations, as well as development and startup of surgical hospitals nationwide. So in every one of those, we would build a hospital. You'd need a medical office building to staff the doctors in. And just the bigger you got, the more medical office buildings you built. So it just kind of was a domino effect. If you built a successful business, you needed buildings. What year did you stop doing that, so to speak? Well, I haven't actually stopped. I've got a new two-year-old hospital in Las Cruces, New Mexico right now that we're in the need of building another 60,000 square foot of medical office building. One, one operating entity, the hospital that we sold in Nebraska, we kept the building and the land. We had 80 some acres there and we're building a cancer center right now for 15 to $20 million. So I'm adding on medical office buildings and various kinds of entities all the time. And what is your role today in those developments? Well, I'm the CEO of our company, and our role as a company is to coordinate everything from design to funding to licensing, if that's necessary, and then staffing and operating training, and then billing and collections and inventory control. And so A to Z, everything from the beginning to the end. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you looking to raise money from private investors to buy commercial real estate? Syndicationattorneys.com is here to guide you every step of the way. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more. They create real estate syndication and fund offering documents, but they also educate you on the ins and outs of raising private money, ensure your offerings comply with security laws, and help you structure fair deals with investors so everybody wins. With reasonable lump sum fees and over $2.75 billion in security offerings created, syndicationattorneys.com has the expertise you need. But that's not all. Syndicationattorneys.com also offers weekly attorney-led masterminds, networking, and strategy sessions through their pre-syndication consulting agreements. To learn more, visit syndicationattorneys.com today to get started. And this offer is not available to Florida residents. Maybe I'm unfamiliar. As I think I mentioned, I'm based in Cincinnati, Ohio. So here, almost all the our medical centers, and we do have a lot of big name hospitals, well known for that, I guess. But they're not independent. It sounds like this is more building independent facilities. Is it my misunderstanding? Or are you developing these and then you have one of the big international medical brands that comes in and, and buys them? Like, what does that look like? We actually were in Cleveland to build one years ago, a surgery center. You actually have them. You just don't know it. There are several independent surgery centers and maybe even some surgical hospitals and possibly some imaging centers in Ohio. I know that for a fact because we had an imaging center in Ohio at one time. So no, it isn't necessarily our inclination to want to build these and operate them and sell them. But it does happen, and it happens most of the time about five, six years in. After we're profitable, we've made a dent in the market, we're, and the major players, I would say, don't enjoy having us as a competitor. We operate less expensively than they do. Therefore, our reimbursements from insurance are lower. In fact, in health care reform under Obama, part of that bill was it's no longer legal for a physician to own his own hospital in the United States. 
And up to that point, it was. Well, the major hospital organizations hated that because we were independent competition. They said we cherry-picked, that we would go in and only do the best surgical cases. The reality is, is we did all surgical cases, and we gave away about 5% of our revenue in charitable work, which is actually more than they give away. And we competed favorably against them, providing actually better health care. Two of my hospitals that I still participate in are rated by Medicare in the top 10 in the United States. So they are all over. And certain states have what's called a certificate of need. Michigan is one of those, but there's dozens of surgical centers that have been built there under that certificate of need. Kansas is a state that doesn't require any of that. If you build it and you pass the codes to design and operation, then you get your license. Okay. And there are certainly some private medical centers here in Cincinnati. It's just what I've seen happen, and my wife, she's a nurse, so she works in healthcare and has experienced a little of this herself. It's, as you mentioned, a private hospital or instant medical group will do well, and then a Mercy or a TriHealth, or here we have University Hospital, they'll buy them out and take over the branding and the facilities, and they might have 100 satellite offices all over the city at different types of medical. But it's just interesting. I've never really understood the real estate side of that. So yeah, it's interesting to see the full dynamic of it there. The medical side is an area that lots of businesses focus on exclusively. And the reason they do is right now, not quite 25% of the gross domestic product of the United States is spent on healthcare. And in fact, that was my motivation to stay in healthcare after I built my first one, was I realized that demographics from the federal government said we'd be at 20 to 25% by now. And, and my opinion was if I could just get the crumbs that fell off the table, I'd be more successful than I ever dreamt. And so that's kind of where I'm at. We have a $13 trillion gross domestic product or 14, whatever it is. And 25% of that, 4 trillion of it is in healthcare, four or 5 trillion. And, and that's just incredible amounts of money floating around. So it's kind of the old adage. You tell your children all the time, you are who you hang around with. Well, if I hang around with people making more money than I've ever dreamed about, sooner or later, I'm going to make some money. I'm going to get involved in deals that are better deals and more lucrative. So that's why I decided to focus for the last 25, 30 years on healthcare. Because first of all, it was a market that wasn't saturated and not necessarily unlike home ownership or multifamily ownership. Obviously, the demographics are that the United States is growing in population. We've got a significant amount of people immigrating here, legal and otherwise, and there's a huge demand for rentals. And contrary to what your age group thinks of the interest rates right now, you're probably complaining that 7% is outrageous. Most of my life, it was above 7%. My first house was seven and a quarter. And went up from there, eight, nine, ten percent was more average than the three and three and a half or four percent that people have seen since oh seven, oh eight, I guess, oh nine, whenever it started going down to stimulate the economy. So I don't think of this as tough times. And in fact, I mentor a handful of young people, and I tell them every day, don't let the interest rates stop you from buying something. It doesn't matter. If they come down to 4%, refinance. 
If they go up, you're golden. Fix the rate. And I did this many times without having to refinance. Just go back to the bank you're with and tell them, I'm going to leave you. Interest rates are 3% better than this loan. I'm going to go to another bank and they say, oh, don't worry about it. Give us 50 bucks and we'll change your interest rate tomorrow. Yeah, certainly in the commercial space, they have a lot more flexibility over things like that. Well, they have it in the housing market too, but I haven't done it for so long now. It's probably a little more difficult in the single family dwellings to do that because everybody's mortgage is sold immediately to Wells Fargo or somebody else. And Wells Fargo, so they don't care if you leave. Right. They're going to want it paid out on their note before they give you a new one or if you're allowed to get a new one on it, so to speak. And if it's sold in the secondary market, that's something that's really, really been picked up the last 25, 30 years, secondary market buying all of the conforming notes where, like you said, not easy to do that. Now, if it's an adjustable rate or something, you may have more leverage, but not on a fixed rate. Yeah, but obviously the people that were on adjustable are getting killed now. And I've never liked adjustable rates. I always felt that you need to stress test yourself. And where was my failure at level at? And if I could make money at 7 or 8%, then that was my stress test. But if I went to a variable, even if it was 5 now, it could go to 9 or 10. And maybe that exceeded my stress test. And I didn't want to go there. So I always looked at both sides of things. I was optimistic that I was making good choices and that there was profitability in there. But I also wanted to know that this thing wasn't going to take me down, especially in my early years when I had a dozen properties versus today when I have quite a number of them. So that all started in the 80s, back to your timeline, and it went on through the 90s. And I didn't start investing in other kinds of real estate until later in 08, and actually have invested in premium properties in places like ski resorts in Colorado and have done a bunch of Airbnb. That was really good, I would tell you, up, or at least for me and some of my friends, up until COVID. Since COVID, Airbnb has not been nearly so successful. And we're converting most of our things to longer-term rental and or selling. But the price of those homes that we bought two, three, four years ago has more than doubled. And it's, in my opinion, a little bit insane. But if people are willing to pay it, I'm willing to sell because I'm really not in love with anything. Yeah, that's a great philosophy to have. You've had such a wealth of experience and obviously you've been at this a long time. So one of the questions that comes to mind, because it's rare I get to speak to people with so much experience, you've seen countless market cycles up, down, as you mentioned, interest rates in the economy. For somebody who might be millennial or even a Gen Z and they're in their 20s or 30s, what advice would you have for those people when it comes to dealing with the ups and downs of the market cycles? Well, if you're a young person and you're not budgeting, you're starting out. You don't have extra wealth. If you're not budgeting, you're shooting yourself in the foot right away. So I believe in budgeting, whether it be the Dave Ramsey, follow Dave Ramsey. Not a bad deal. Not exactly a process that I would follow in my life at this point, because debt can be valuable. He professes not to have any debt. Well, I profess the same thing when you're young and you've got one house. You want to buy a second house? Save. I would tell you the same things that he says. Don't buy a TV on time. Don't buy a car on time. Don't buy new cars. Don't buy houses that stretch you out and et cetera, et cetera. Those are all killers. 
I would also tell you, stay married. I've been married 51 years. The worst thing that can happen to a man or a woman is a divorce from an economic standpoint. So I would start off with that. From that point, I'd get myself into a position where I could afford to borrow some money and go back to the stress test. If things went to heck, how bad do they have to get before I can't afford this project anymore? And I would progress. So I don't think it's unrealistic to think that you could progress to commercial real estate. I don't think it's unrealistic to expect that you're going to have to work hard, sacrifice. But in the end, all of that comes back to benefit you. I'd also tell you, you can't wait until everything's in perfect alignment. There's so many young people getting started that'll say, well, I'm just saving all my money, paying off my debts, whatever they're doing. And when I've got all my debt paid off and I've got this nest egg and and I can go out and survive without having to worry about it, then I'm going to start my own business. And I tell them right off the bat, you might as well plan on working for somebody else the rest of your life. Because if you wait until all the stars are aligned, so to speak, then you're never going to get out and do this. You've got to be somewhat of a risk taker and be willing to take calculated risks. So calculate your stress test, calculate your downside, calculate your upside, and have a long-term plan. My early in life long-term plan was to buy a house, run it, build it up, pay off some of it, let some equity develop, borrow against it, buy another one, build another one, whatever the case may be, or rent the first one out, whatever, and just keep doing that until I had an independent portfolio, pay them off as quickly as I can. Got several friends that own 30, 40, 50 houses that they did exactly that starting in college, some of them. And now they're 60 years old. They've got 50 houses, paying them $1,000 a month in rent. And 25% of it goes to maintenance and upkeep. Nothing goes to principal and interest anymore because they paid them off. They're living like kings. Yeah, a couple points you made there. You're never going to know everything. You're never going to be prepared for every possible outcome. And I think a lot of first-time investors struggle with taking that leap of faith. And to me, I have three kids. So to me, it's a lot like having kids. I don't think any man, especially speaking from a man's perspective, is ever ready to have a kid. It gets easier, I think, after you have the first one. And I don't know how many you have, but it sounds like you can relate to this. But you're never really ready. You're never prepared, no matter what you know and how much money you have and all those things. And men want to provide and have things perfect. And I think investing has a lot of correlations where it's like, you got to kind of try to learn what you can and the rest is just figuring it out as you go. And, and you're going to make some mistakes and just do the best you can and then overcome the challenges as they come. So that was one thing that resonated with me that you said. And the second one is when you're talking about real estate, you've mentioned so many different things you've invested in over the years. And I didn't plan on getting so much into your backstory, but the reason as you kept saying more and more, you have such a swath of knowledge that I wanted to understand the full path because I know people that have made money in every type of real estate. And as you mentioned, your friends that just bought single family houses, one a year or maybe a couple a year or whatever, but relatively slow and passive pace for people who want to scale in real estate. And as you mentioned, they're paid off. They're making 50 plus thousand dollars a month in rental income. And it wasn't like it became their whole career. It didn't encompass everything they did. And you look back now after all this time, and you're sitting on a gold mine and you have all this cash flow and passive income or relatively passive income. 
And I think it just goes to show that there's so much value in real estate over time. And I think that to me is kind of the lesson I'm taking from what you're saying, that every type of real estate can make you money. And if you look at a long enough timeline of any investment or certainly real estate investments, it's hard not to make money in a long window. If you're willing to look at it long-term, history would tell you it's hard not to make money. So effectively what you're saying, it's time value of money. And time value of money is if you're 21 and you start investing $100 a month, it's worth $2 million when you hit 65. I made that up, of course, but it's a significant amount of money if you just make 8 to 10% every year. Same thing with housing. Start doing this when you're young. That's the funny thing. I think it's almost humorous when people tell me, well, I could lose everything. When you're 25, if you're starting with nothing, you've got nothing to lose. So why wouldn't you go for it? Just go for it. You got it. But I would tell you also, not everybody's meant to be an independent businessman. There's a lot of people out there and it's not a bad thing. In fact, some days I've been envious of it, that people could go home at five o'clock and go fishing and not worry at all about what was coming tomorrow. Not their business. They didn't have to make the payroll. They didn't have any concerns at all. And I'm like, gosh, how do you do that? Because I can't do that. So a little envious, but the other side of it is now from 50 on, you've got the life that everybody dreams about if you start when you're 20. And I did. When I didn't have $75, I put $75 into my retirement fund at 21. And I did it for years and years and years. Now I can tell you, I don't believe in the stock market. I'm pretty much completely out of the stock market. If I'm going to lose my money, I'm going to lose it on my own decision-making and investments rather than somebody in New York making those decisions for me. So I'd rather have my money into something that's going to make me five, six, seven percent and build my cash in that and then go buy another building and invest my money in projects that I control. And I can't tell you how much more money that's made me by being in control of my money than by letting somebody run my stock portfolio for me. So another piece of ward wisdom, I guess. I like that. That's a good phrase. I couldn't agree more. I'm completely out of the stocks as well. Cash out my retirement when I left my career and went into real estate full time and completely agree with that. Well, I could talk to you all day. You are, like I said, a wealth of knowledge, very interesting life and story here, but we're running up on time. So let me transition to the best ever lightning round. Are you ready? Sure. What is your best ever book recommendation? Best book recommendation? Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. Heard of it. Don't think I read that one. That's fiction, right? It's a classic, but yes, it's fiction. Give me a real estate or business if you got one. Millionaire Next Door. Okay. Another good one. I have four children. I paid each of them $100 to read them and give me a book report. <laughs> Hopefully it paid off for them. All of my children are doing better than I did at their age. Very good. Best ever way you like to give back? I, as you might suspicion, am a conservative and I donate to Christian colleges and conservative schools. So Hillsdale College, Colorado Christian University are two of the universities that I give a reasonable amount of money to every year. My motivation there, if you are interested, is that I believe we need more citizens in this country that believe in economic independence and economic prosperity built on capitalism. Capitalism isn't a bad word. It's a great word. 
And those universities are putting out more young conservative capitalists that believe that everything we get in life is earned and things that are given to us are not valued. And if you wanted, maybe my second best book was Anne Rand and her book of Atlas Shrugged. If you haven't read that, that's another book I paid my children to read. It's a great story in capitalism, and it was written in the 50s. She was a Russian philosopher. Fabulous book. And where can people learn more about your company and the things you guys are up to? I suppose on the internet, but we're not very big in advertising or our promotion comes internally from the projects we do. Because they're well run, we get referenced regularly. So a statement that was made to me, and I don't know who started this quote, but it was, you spend the first 20 years of your life building your reputation. You spend the last 20 years of your life living off your reputation. And I can tell you that my life is exactly that. For my private equity firm now, I'm getting three to five references a week of projects that are ongoing that just need more equity to be successful or projects that are probably failing and they need some help or whatever. Obviously, I don't do all of them. I only am taking on three to five projects a year and attempting to fund them with either myself or I have a network of three to 400 high net worth individuals that have been mostly doctors that have been in my projects that if I need more money to fund something, I can go to them and make them partners. So I think that answers your question. Ward, we really appreciate your time. I know I learned a lot. I really enjoyed hearing your story and we'll be sure to link to that previous show. I'm sure you covered a lot of that on there as well. Audience, if you got any value from today's show like I did, please leave us a five-star review and follow us on social media. And I hope you all have a best ever day. Ward, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you, Joe. I enjoyed it. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.